Yeah, thanks Josh. Good morning CLC. How are we doing? It is so good to be back. Um, for those of you that weren't here, um, I was here two months ago. I got the opportunity to preach and um, I loved it so much that I begged Josh and Chrissy to have me back. Um, and after I bribed them, they let me. Um, so, so thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, for being a part of the CLC family. Um, I am so excited. I have been praying for this for I don't even want to tell you how long. Um, and I'm just excited for the way that God is going to communicate value to all of us this morning. Um, and if you walk in here, um, I just want you to know right away that you are valued, that you are beloved, um, that you are a child of God, and that you are welcome here to belong before you believe. Um, so thank you for being here. Um, before we start, I want to pray. Bless the message. So would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. Yeah, Jesus, thank you for the opportunity it is to be together this morning. This time of year, Lord, I think um, the transitions of life, um, starting school again, getting out of school, it can be difficult to focus on you and to focus on what you have for us. So, Lord, would you just make us attentive this morning? Um, would you make my words clear? Would you help me to communicate your message clearly? Because I can't preach good enough without you. Um, Jesus, you are, you are welcome in this place this morning. Um, and that for every broken heart, that for every person in the room that is hurting, that you are there to comfort them. Yeah, Father, we love you, and we invite you this morning. Amen. So I'm sure you know, as Josh said, but this week we are wrapping up a series called Checkmate. And if you haven't been here for the previous four parts, they're all online. You can go check them out. And Josh is one of my favorite people to listen to. Um, he's just an incredible, incredible teacher. Um, so if you want to go check those out after today, they're all up online for you. Um, and this entire series, we've really been talking about this idea that um, the the checkmate is all about making sense of the life that we have been given, making sense of the, the hand that we have been dealt. Um, and this, this kind of subtitle that knowing the future changes the present, right? And it's like if you're playing a game of chess and, and you're, you're playing and you're doing each move and you know that there's a checkmate coming. You know that in the end you're going to win. It changes your perspective on how you play. That's kind of the idea behind this series. Again, it's awesome. Um, but talking to Josh about this, we've been talking about it for weeks and kind of planning. Um, it reminded me of times back when Josh and I used to work with some of you know the ministry of Young Life here in town. Um, and it reminded me of when we used to work together um, in Young Life. And this, this may come as a surprise to you, but Josh and I actually used to live together, which I don't know how that works because we look identical. So everyone got us confused. Um, Christy never kissed me, luckily. That would have been awkward. Um, but I got, the, I got the honor to live with him. Josh and I met through Young Life. He was actually my Young Life leader. Um, and Josh and I got really close. He really looks up to me. I'm kind of his hero. Um, and, and even when I went off to college, um, and even, even, even when I kind of left their house and um, kind of got out of the nest, as they say, um, we still stayed close. We still talk on the phone just about every week. Um, but it got me thinking of this, this time that I lived with him, um, most of you know that Josh is a huge hunter. So the most expensive thing that he owns are guns, which is a little bit ridiculous, um, but besides his house. But the second most um, expensive thing that Josh owns is his book collection. He has a huge book collection. It's actually really cool. Um, and he used to have this office at his house um, that was kind of his office, and he had these bookshelves that he had mounted on the wall. And there was just book after book of different subjects and different Bibles and all this stuff. And he's read, like, a little bit of a lot of them. Um, but I can remember sitting in that room with him in these times living with him, and we would just sit there for hours and just be like, oh, what's that book about? Let's just, let's read that. Oh, what's that book about? And we would just be so ADD 
about the ideas that we were talking about and dreaming together. Um, and it was just this incredible time. I don't know if you have memories like that with someone close to you where it's just something so simple, but it's just so fond. Um, and the reason I bring that up today is there is this one book in particular. Um, some of you might have read it. It's called this, this book called Courageous Leadership. Um, it's a little blue book by this guy named Bill Hybels. Um, and in it, there's a quote that really has spoken to my life and really I think um, I want to unpack today a little bit. Um, and it's this quote that, that Bill Hybel says that the local church is the hope of the world. That the local church is the hope of the world. And, and even as I read this word today, there is like, there's still something that rushes through my bones um, with emotion thinking about it. I can remember talking to, to Josh about this and trying to unpack it together and what does it mean and what does that look like and, and dwelling on it and, and reading ab- about it more and I think I realized that with phrases like this that are, that are so profound, it comes with a lot of questions. It comes with a lot of questions, and, and sometimes we hear phrases like this, and we agree or we disagree, but when we really think about it, maybe we don't know actually where we stand. Because when I hear the statement that the local church is, is the hope of the world, and, and maybe some of you are with, with me in this in light of recent events, but I think, man, I think that's true, and I hope it is. But if so, How? If the local church is the hope of the world, what does that look like? What is, what is, how does that play out? Um, and again, I don't think this is one of those phrases you can just take at face value. I think it needs to be dug into. I think the reality is, if we were being honest about it, I could take this mic, because it's wireless, <laughs> hand it around this room, and the only, if the only rule was that you had to be completely honest, I'm not sure that every single one of us would agree with that statement, that the local church is the hope of the world. Because when you think of church, right, when you think of what we're doing right now, maybe some of you have fond memories. Maybe you think of Sunday school. Maybe you think of flannel graphs. Maybe you think of old women with perfume kissing you. Maybe, maybe you think of steeples of grand architecture of, you know, these incredible, beautiful places of stained glass windows. Maybe, maybe you think of a scandal that you, were, that you heard of. Maybe you think of a pastor locking people out during a flood. Maybe, maybe you think of, of overpaid pastors and people that seem like they're being paid to be friendly to you. Maybe you think of a personal experience that you've had with church in the past that caused you to not come back to church for a long time. I think the reality is that we have a lot of different ideas of what church is. Like, what is church? Um, maybe you, just, you connect church to a person, a pastor that you had or a leader that you had, and, and when, you, when you think about it, you can't help but join church to that person, and you don't like that. Well, today, I want to maybe bring us together, and I want to look at an ancient recording. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Acts chapter 4. The words will be up on the screen for you, but I want to look at a recording of what the church looked like before they even called it church, when it first began. If you know the Bible even a little bit, you probably know that there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels, and they're just the stories about Jesus' life. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the third one of these, the Gospel of Luke, was written by this guy who was a doctor. And he was just a pretty normal dude. He was friends with this guy named Paul. Um, and he, he basically, he heard about Jesus from afar, and he decided, I'm going to figure out what this guy's all about. And so he carefully examined, he, he interviewed eyewitnesses, and he went around and he wrote it all down. And that's where we get the Gospel of Luke. Well, you may not know this, but Luke actually wrote a second book, a part two to the, the Gospel of Luke, to the story of Jesus' life. And that's where we get the book of Acts. 
and it's sometimes referred to as the Acts of the Apostles because it, it identifies the experiences of the church, put that in quotation marks, because they didn't even call it back then, what it looked like in the years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And this morning in the fourth chapter of that book, we get to see events that happened in the same year, literally, that Jesus died. So set the scene for you. So if you have your Bibles, you can open those up. should be up on the screen here. Um, but if you back up to Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, two of the guys that walked the closest with Jesus during his life, they're walking into the temple, into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem that you can still go to today. Um, still a real city. And, and Peter and John are walking in, and there's this beggar. Imagine like you're walking by a homeless guy in, on 16th Street Mall in Denver. There's this beggar that's kind of laid down before them. And as Peter and John walk by, the beggar looks at them and he asks them for money. And Peter and John, they, I, I can imagine them kind of looking at each other and going, we don't have any money, but here's what we do have. Walk. And they point at the man. And the man immediately gets up and walks. And he's a little achy at first, so he puts his arms around them and he begins walking into the temple with them. Well, obviously, this is kind of a crazy scene. So as they walk into the temple, people start gathering around like, did they just heal that man? What, what is going on over here? And people begin gathering around and it's at this moment that Peter and John begin to speak to the people, telling them by what name they did this. This is a beautiful picture, right? Beautiful scene. It's awesome. The Bible is so cool. Um, so let's, let's start reading Acts chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They are greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So here's Peter and John. And, and just to kind of give you an idea of the tension in the room, right? Like they're talking to these guys. These guys are, are kind of seizing them. They put them in jail. These are the very men that had killed Jesus just months before. The very men that had crucified their rabbi, the guy that they had given up everything, left their families, left their jobs. They had given up everything to follow this man. These are the very same men that had crucified Jesus. And it's important to recognize in the passage that when, when these men, when the Sanhedrin, the elders and the teachers of the law, when they had killed Jesus, they thought they had stopped the movement. They thought that if, if they crucified this guy, the people would scatter. And honestly, they had good reason to because the people did scatter. Maybe you've heard stories about the Apostle Peter, the very same one we're talking about in this passage. And it's recorded that on the night of Jesus' death, he was in the courtyard, and a little servant girl, it literally says this in the, in the scripture, a little servant girl comes up to him. Like, where's Jovi Donoff? Imagine Jovi Donoff walking up to him saying, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And he's like, no. And he walks away, and he gets all scared. Like, the... The Sadducees and the teachers of the law, they had a good reason to believe that this movement was over. But here, they're standing in the temple, and there's these very same men that were cowards just months before, standing before them, teaching about this man, Jesus. Must have been crazy. Let's keep reading. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander's, Alexander and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power, by what name did you do this? And then Peter, the same Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, 
said to them, and here we get this incredible speech from Peter. He said, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, and this is so controversial, like it's, it's insane how controversial this is in their territory. He said, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man, and I can imagine the beggar standing there with them, that this man stands before you healed. He says, Jesus is, and he quotes a piece of Old Testament scripture here, something that these Jewish men would have known very well. He said, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Talk about controversy. Here's Peter and John, two men who, who grew up in this very tradition of these men that they're speaking to, who grew up agreeing with them. And now, on their territory, in the place where these guys usually teach, they're telling them that they're wrong. They're telling them that Jesus is the only way. And next, we get the response of the Sanhedrin, and this is really where I want us to camp today. When they saw the courage, that is the Sanhedrin, the teachers of the law, these Jewish men that had, had crucified Jesus, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had in fact been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who was healed there standing with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. And, and I can, you can feel the, the tension in the next couple of verses as the Sanhedrin is conferring together. And they're like, we killed this guy. We thought, we thought this movement was over. We thought that we had finished it. We didn't want to kill him, but we, we had to. And, and here they're, they're coming back, and, and they've healed this man. What are we supposed to do? And so they come up with this plan that they're just going to pull the, the four-year-old and say, stop it. They're going to say, cut it out. Let's see how it goes. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, this is huge, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. So after further threats, the Sanhedrin let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people in the temple were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the t elders had said to them. Peter and John would carry on, um, just kind of give you the rest of the story, um, throughout the book of Acts, um, and with some other people, like maybe you've heard of the Apostle Paul and some other leaders in the church, but they would carry on to not listen to the Sanhedrin's demands. They would never even consider to stop talking about Jesus of Nazareth, this man who had been crucified who had raised from the dead and then had ascended into heaven. And not only that, but this man that they had walked through life with, who had predicted his own death and resurrection. And as long as they continued to teach, and as the church continued to grow, followers of Jesus would continue to proclaim the name of Jesus to the world, telling people about this man who had given them life. Upon Peter and John's arrival with the people, in, in the next verse, it says that the people raised their voices together and prayed. 
And here we get to hear one of the first prayers of the early church. It says this, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And it says that after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. And I don't know about you, but I I think we can learn a lot about someone based on what their prayers look like. Amen? I mean, I mean, if you, when you pray, you're talking to the most powerful being ever. It's, it's pretty normalized in our culture, but, but what we see the church pray for here is they have just been persecuted and, and almost given death threats, and they go away and they pray for, not for, for God to stop those people, but for God to consider their threats and to give them more boldness, to give them more courage. Um, and there's this word used a couple times throughout this prayer and throughout this passage, um, and as we see the church ask for boldness, and as we see that they were enabled to proclaim the word of God boldly, the Greek word paresia is used here, and, and it's, it's unique because it's the same word that was used in verse 13 when the Sanhedrin said they saw the courage of Peter and John. It's, it's a word that Luke was using on purpose throughout this passage to highlight something, to give us a hint about what the local church was known for, because if the local church was known for one thing back in the day, if the early church was known for one thing, it was courage. This movement out of this tiny little country, this know-nothing country that seemed like it was always getting taken over by another country, and this little man who was born in a major, who grew up in Nazareth in Hickville, people said, say what you will about the church, but man, those people have courage. Those people are bold. Those people are confident. And I can't help but think that we too today should be known for courage. When you look at the the current state of things in the world, and maybe it's just me, I haven't I haven't been here that long. But I feel like the longer I am here, the more I become aware of the collective pain and the collective hurt in the world. I mean, just recently, just recently, right, we have earthquakes, we have rises in sex trafficking, child slavery, terrorist attacks, shootings like the one in Las Vegas, these incredible disasters that people die and people get hurt. And it's not just across the world. I mean, maybe some of you have heard about this, but just uh, last week, three blocks from my house, I live in Fort Collins, three blocks from my house, there were three people shot and killed, um, the boyfriend of a CSU student was, was waiting for this girl named Savannah McNeely at her apartment. And upon their arrival, he shot her, he shot her two friends, and then he shot himself. Only one person got out, and they were fatally injured. Devastating for our community. Some of our closest friends in Fort Collins that knew this girl personally, that the family, and, and I, I just can't help but feel that coming into this weekend to this morning, there's just been this heaviness 
there's been this collective pain, and, and it's got me thinking more and more about the people that we pass every day in the grocery store that are hurting and that are in pain, and the people that are in our circles that are hurting and that are in pain, and, and the state of affairs today may seem much more complex than it was 2,000 years ago, and maybe it is, and I don't pretend to have all the answers, right? None of us do, but here's what I do know. The world needs the church, those people who claim to follow Jesus to show courage again. And if you remember one thing today, I want it to be this. This is just the one, the one idea that I feel like I want to communicate is that we are living in a world that needs courageous people now more than ever. The church is the hope of the world because the world desperately needs people who are courageous. Or maybe put better, the church is the hope of the world because the world desperately needs people who are modeling their life after the most courageous persons who have ever lived. There are hurting people in our lives that need a lifeline. If we were all to really think about it, I would bet that right now there is someone in your life that needs you to be courageous in their life. And what would it take for us to embody the courage of Jesus, to embody the courage of the early church in the way that we approach other people? I can remember a, a season of life, and, and maybe some of you relate to this, but a season of life where I was very depressed, and I was very anxious, um, and I was feeling without hope. Um, I was trying to finish college. My grades had dropped. My motivation was gone. Um, it was one of those seasons of life where, if you can relate to this, I had a hard time getting out of bed, and, and I can remember having a conversation with someone really close to me, um, and we sat in, in her office, and, and I was weeping, and, and she was there trying to comfort me, and, and I can remember amidst all of this, she looked me straight in the eyes and she said, Rowan, I know you. I know your heart. And you know what else I know? I know that you're going to get through this. And as simple as that sounds, man, I believe that is a beautiful picture of what courage looks like. The, the disciples had heard and seen a message that was so good, that was so life-giving, they had no choice but to tell people about it. And when you have seen and when you have heard what true life is, you have no choice but to tell people about it. One of my good friends loves to quote this, um, this old theologian. His name is Wolfhart Ponenberg. Super crazy name, I know. But he said, he said man, I'm just, I'm just a beggar who found bread trying to, trying to tell other beggars where to find bread. Like, we are all messed up people, right? There is nothing, there is nothing we can do to magically save someone. But what we do have is Jesus. This incredibly courageous man that lived 2,000 years ago that died and that rose again. The world needs people to speak life into the pain that exists right now. And the person of Jesus is the most life. That is why the church is the hope of the world. Because we have Jesus who spent time with sinners and religious folk alike. We have Jesus who invited his enemies to dinner with him. We have Jesus who loved those who were in the world's eye out of God's grace. Jesus who died on a cross for my sin and for your sin. In the person of Jesus, the church is the hope of the world. The world needs people who have a courage like Peter and John had that even amidst difficulty, struggle, pain, hardship, courage can look the future right in the eye and say, the best way out is forward. But perhaps more important than this, courage can look at someone else and speak the truth. 
into their life. Like my friend spoke the truth into my life. And isn't this what this series is all about? I get the honor to close this thing out, but man, it's funny how it, it ends up with this, that knowing the future changes the present. That we don't have to live a life without knowing the end of the story. That we already know the end of the story. The end of the story is Jesus, and he is one. And because of this, his people ought to be known for courage. I want to close today, um, and this might be a little different for some of you, but I want to close today by, um, by saying that maybe you're here today, and maybe you need a lifeline. Maybe you're here, and there's some real pain that is going on, and, and you don't know exactly what it is you need, but when you hear me say the words, there's probably someone who needs to be more courageous, in your life, you can't help but sinking back in your chair, wishing that someone would reach out and be more courageous in your life right now. And if this isn't you right now, my guess is it either has been or it will be, right? Because we all experience pain. And I want to say this to you. This church family is here for you. People are always going to be broken and people are always going to be imperfect, but because of what Jesus has done, we get to sit with you today and confidently say, it's going to be okay, and you are going to get through this. Let's be a church family that speaks life into people, that tells them you are beloved by God. You don't have to do anything to earn anybody's love. To the best of our ability, let's be here for people. I want to read to you a, a, a short passage, and, and as I do it, might be weird. I'd like you to close your eyes. This is a passage that's really spoken to me and um, I think speaks to just our identity and the fact that our next step does not determine our value. Jesus has already done that. So if you close your eyes, I'm going to read this over you. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planning of the Lord for the display of his splendor. The world needs courageous people now more than ever. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for this message, for this time. And yeah, man, thank you for the people in this room, for the way that we get to be light to each other, for the way that we get to speak courage into each other's lives. And Father, as we enter into a time of, of singing, of singing to you, I just ask that you would help us reflect in our hearts of who is that person that we need to be more courageous in their life that is reaching for a lifeline. 
Father, help us to have the courage of the early church, the courage of Jesus, and help us to love people big. The world is in need of courageous people, Father. Now more than ever, help us to be those people. Amen.